Good afternoon and a happy summer, everybody. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on Living Writers, we get back in the time machine and travel to October 2011 with guest Stacey Durasmo and her novel, The Sky Below. Hope you enjoy. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Maybe I'm in love with you I say maybe Maybe I'm in love with you Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so pleased to have Stacy Durasmo here in the studio. Welcome, Stacy. Thank you. It's really a pleasure and a treat to be here. Well, it seems like you have a love of college radio. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a love of college radio. I um, I grew up with a very close family friend um, who actually unfortunately died just a couple years ago, and he was a DJ at a a radio station called WFMU, which was which was a which is in New Jersey. It's part of Uppsala College, and uh, it ha- you know it actually made a massive impression on me as a child. Freeform radio, in many ways, um, I, I, I mean, really, it's not going too far to say that it really helped make my aesthetic. Um, it was really kind of revelatory to me as a kid, and so I do really love it. And also, I just it's just great. <laughs> it is just really, really great. These studios are great. It's great, and it's and be, and the freeform aspect of it becoming so much more unusual. With things seem yeah. so much more prepackaged. Yeah, and have to come one after the other, marching down the the hall. Yeah, definitely. I mean, hopefully, internet radio will will change some of that. I mean, some of the internet stations are are interesting, but. Um, yeah, there was definitely. I mean, there was definitely a long dead zone of hyper, hyper packaged, and most of the stuff on the dial now is unlistenable. Yeah. Not us. I like, think not. Not WCBN <laughs> FM Ann Arbor. <laughs> Thank you. We'll have to. We'll have to get you to do yeah. a station ID for us, Stacy, because mm. that's what mm. you just did mm. then. Mm. <laughs> really, I've always and, wanted to. And I'll call you up when we're doing the fundraiser, and you can be a witness from afar. Okay, <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Not to hit you up for anything. Yeah, no, that'd be that great. Sounded, that's not what I meant. No, that'd be great. <laughs> but before I go any further, I'll read um, the bio because you're here in town. Mm-hmm. Um, you're doing a reading tomorrow at the Art Museum. Yes. And yeah. the, the, the Helmet, Helmet Stern Auditorium. Yes, yes at 5 o'clock. 5 o'clock. Yeah. 
the novel that we'll be talking about today is in what you'll read a little bit yeah. from The Sky Below, published uh, now this year out in paperback with Mariner Books. Yeah. Because it had its life in hardcover. Yeah, the it came out in, in 2009 in hardcover and in 2010 in paperback. Okay. Yeah. And so that's that's yeah. what I hold in my hand today. <laughs> okay. And so will you be reading from, from The Sky Below? Yeah. Or, or yeah, I decided to read from The Sky Below. Um, I'll be reading from the first part of it tomorrow at the reading. Okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah. And so people will get a little a, a teaser of that yes. a little bit later in the program. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, without further ado, here's the short bio on the back of the book. Stacy Durasmo is the author of the novels Tea, a New York Times notable book of the year, and A Seahorse Year, a San Francisco Chronicle best book of the year, and a Lambda Literary Award winner. A recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship in Fiction, she is currently an assistant professor of writing at Columbia University. So you're based in New York City. I am. <laughs> I am. And so, Stacy, did you grow up in New Jersey? Is that no, your no, no, years or no? I grew. I was actually born in New York, um, and uh, actually, where I'm, I live on the Upper West Side now, which coincidentally is where my parents met, married, and ha- had me. So I'm actually very oddly suddenly living about f- literally four blocks from where they brought me home from the hospital, which is which is a really odd place to find myself in. It wasn't on my life plan. Um, What did you imagine? Well, I just never, I mean, I've lived in New York for very happily for a very, very long time. Um, I went to school in New York and basically stayed um, and have been there for, you know, for years since the 80s. Um, New York is a place that has always felt, where I've always felt deeply at home and, and very, very just very happy, just like I'm in the right spot. Um, but I never planned to live four blocks from 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 where I was made. That wasn't really in my. That wasn't really what I was thinking. Um, it just it just happened that way. So so it's kind of interesting. I'm I I'm across the street from the park where I played as a toddler, which is my mother was just visiting actually, and um, and it was really interesting for her too to to be back where she had been such a long time ago when I was little. So. And, and so that must make an interesting play on, on time for you, too. With well, the, yeah, moments. and definitely. And actually, the funny thing about New York is that certainly it, it changes, right? I mean, there, there are things that change, but there's actually a great deal about it that stays the same. And also in New York, things are reused more than they're torn down, right? So... Um, so actually two buildings away from me is a building where my parents had a basement apartment, and now that same space is being used by um, Barnard College for something else. What we do in New York is also we just— close then. Which is also your, very close. alma mater. Yeah. Yeah, it's really weird. Um, what we do in New York is we reuse, 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 right? I mean, a city like, say, Hong Kong is building hand over fist. But New York, we just take that same little space <laughs> and redo it a million times. So you can look in a, into a room, and that room may have been used over and over and over 15 different times by 15 different people. It's a very archival city that way. Um, so do you and do you feel then the layers? Yes, you do. You absolutely feel the layers. Um, you can. I mean, in some places you can <laughs> literally see the layers in the layers and layers and layers of paint. But you can also feel them. You can. They're they're really they're really palpable. Um, 
in the architecture, in who has lived there, in, um, you know, I have a, a dear elderly friend who lives on the upper west, on the upper east side and she lives in an apartment that was previous that was previously owned or previously lived in by Edie Sedgwick and prior to Edie Sedgwick Zsa, Zsa Gabor how glamorous no i know how glamorous it's like if the walls could talk right um, but that's the kind of thing that happens in new york all the time spaces are are continually re-inhabited. And in, in that way, it's kind of a really haunted city, which is one of the things I find very moving about it. And is that then also something that you're able to use for fuel in your writing? Yeah. I mean, I've really, you know, it's a, it's an aspect of the city and an aspect actually of any place, right? I mean, um, I was in Istanbul a number of years ago. And when I went into the Hagia Sophia, which is the very famous, um, mosque that was that was originally a church and it it contains the layers of all of the places of worship that it's been right and it's an it's an extraordinary structure um and i cried because you can you can feel and literally see the overlapping layers on the walls so it's something that um, that is very moving to me, and that I'm always trying to get at in, in the sky, the sky below, because it takes place nearly all in New York, or quite a bit of it takes place in New York. That feeling of the city as a layered ruin is something that was really inspirational to me, and that honestly, I never get, I never get tired of it. It's, it's, I, you know, an entirely new city just would never interest me. So it seems like you're setting your course for remaining in New York City it, it, even if you're taking these the going oh. to Istanbul going to oh sure to Rome, sure sure to... yeah new york is you know is a is is a wonderful place to me it's a it's sort of magical to me um but but these other places around the world that have you know rome obviously has a has very palpable layers that you can see um all of those places where things are mixed together is very is very very moving to and, me. And you spent time in Rome as a, yeah, a fellowship. Yeah, last spring um, I spent I spent um, a month at the American Academy in Rome working on the next book that I'm working on, which has a, a section in Rome, um, and that was a complete treat and delight. And Rome, I mean, Rome is a city. I've been to Rome before. But every time you go, it sort of shows another layer of itself to you. It does not show you everything all at once. You have to, it you you kind of go down through the layers of Rome. And Rome has so many layers, right? Literally, literally down to the layers of like crypts, right? So yeah, it was great. And so was this um, was this book? Is it something to do with also your family? heritage station no 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 no, not even remotely and my family believe me are you kidding they should have been so lucky no they were peasants from the south of italy that they probably never even went to rome um so no 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 it's about something totally else Oh, okay. But not something, maybe we shouldn't talk about it. Not yeah. till the next conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The so next conversation. Because you're fully in, pre- are you sort of in the still generative mode for, for this? Yeah, this I'm still, I'm novel? still working on it. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's not finished. Let's put it that way. Is, was the research component of it in, in Rome? Did you actually, or were you going there to feel the city like you do for yeah. New York City? You know, the research, well, the research component of the book was all in Europe, but Rome is one part of 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 where I needed to be in Europe. Um, not not 
this summer, but this previous summer, I also spent a great deal of time in Europe traveling around to different places um, as part of research for the book, including uh, parts of Europe that I had never been to before, like Estonia, Latvia, the sort of remnants of Eastern Europe, which was which was fascinating um, and must feel completely different yeah, they feel com- this, they feel completely different, different energies yeah they, they feel completely Estonia for anyone who wants to go is an extraordinary place it is Why? an extraordinary place <laughs> how so because I, I believe you with your facial well, expression <laughs> um, Tallinn which is the city that I was in is a city that is that is changing at a rate see again it's these cities with these layers it's changing at at a at a phenomenally rapid rate, you have cheek by jowl kind of kind of literally medieval buildings built out of stone, and then these enormous glass and steel skyscrapers. You know, uh, Estonia looks at Norway. Estonia literally is across the Baltic from mm-hmm. Norway, and so it's very much poised like Istanbul. It's poised between. Um, Eastern Europe and Western Europe, and you can feel the forces colliding literally by the minute in the city, and it's very, very exciting and interesting. It's an amazing place. And perhaps fruitful for fiction. Very fruitful for fiction. I mean, um, very fruitful for fiction, yes. And maybe even journalism, too. Oh, my God. If I were a journalist, I would race all of these. I mean, this is sort of off topic, I guess, but all of these places, I think, should be written about right now because the way they are now is completely different from how they'll be five minutes from now and how they were 10 minutes before now. They're, they're changing so fast and someone should be there to record it. Let's take a short break and then we'll come back. Okay. We'll, we'll talk more with Stacey Durasmo. Her book will also hear part of The Sky Below. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. If you're just tuning in, you've got living writers today on the program. Stacy Drasmo is here. Stacy, thanks for picking the songs for today's show too. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for thank you for letting me be a pretend DJ for five seconds. It was great. <laughs> and, and also thanks to Brian uh, Delaney here for um, actually finding the songs mm-hmm. and, and 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 putting them on for us here. <laughs> um, so, so Stacy, with that almost sounded like a love song to New York, the PJ Harvey's version. Yeah, yeah. We float is a that that was we float, which is a, a very very beautiful song off the record. Stories from the city, stories from the sea. Um, and I chose that song because the um, in a seahorse year, my second novel. There's a teenage boy who's 
who's really, really struggling with what turns out to be a very serious mental illness. And he becomes very, he's very obsessed with PJ Harvey and listens to her all the time. And he and his girlfriend listen to her all the time. And then he also writes her a lot of long letters thinking that she'll be writing back to him. Um, and so I listened to to quite a lot of PJ Harvey when I was when I was writing that book and that and that that particular record stories from the city stories from the sea was one that I think is sort of engraved you know on my cerebellum somewhere because I listened to it so many times and was it how did did the character did he actually pick PJ Harvey or were you happening to listen to her at the time so they collided and it became the story or? yeah no it was more that um I felt that she would speak to something in him, that she would speak to a certain kind of, I mean, she has that sound that's simultaneously very wild and very tender. And I felt that he would, he would, he would feel that she was a kindred spirit to him. She's, and I do think, I mean, I really have no idea, right? I'm not part of the PJ Harvey fan club, but it seems to me that she's the kind of singer who would inspire a, a sort of obsess that she could inspire obsession. Um, and he has a kind of an obsession with her. And so that's why, um, that's why I, that's why they, the two of them seemed a fit to me, seemed a match to me. And I think it's interesting because in a way it's something that you go with the instinct. It feels right. And you didn't then think, Oh, I need to research what her fan club is like to no. see if there are people writing these yeah like no. that it's just this idea it makes sense and let go yeah it's the character yes. right it was th this kid this teenage boy in northern california at a certain period of time um and you know as fiction writers you want we want to be careful not not to know too much we want to know enough but not too much um, because we're not fitting people into into forms, right? Mm. We're we're finding what they would find in the world, and the world is this sort of big, gorgeous junk heap of stuff, and and they're going to be wandering through it, picking things up very randomly, um, not fitting into some kind of um, demographic grid, right? I also didn't. I also didn't. Uh, push too hard on exactly what is popular among boys his age at the time that I was writing that book. Do you know what I mean? I mean, PJ Harvey was definitely in the ballpark, but I wouldn't go trolling through, I don't know, Billboard magazine or something, because that's just not true. You just you just miss the boat doing things like that, you know? Yeah, or the boat takes you somewhere else. That's not. It doesn't seem genuine, perhaps. Yeah, on the page exa even. right, exactly. I mean, that's how they make bad TV shows: is they sit around and oh. they collect statistics and they, and they sort of work up these kind of demographic profiles in in which characters then seem like kind of Frankenstein's monsters seemed together of a lot of marketing decisions because they are because they are yeah, yeah. right. They are, and um, we're not making marketing decisions. We're making. We're hopefully we're making beings on the page. Um, we're trying. They actually, <laughs> um, someone's, uh, they sent an alert to the radio station saying there was a call for um, the real world was going to be in town um, looking for the, you know, the MTV. Oh, I think no. I'm saying it right. Yeah, like the, the real world. Right, yeah. Pretending to be a codger here. Well, I am a codger. But, uh, <laughs> What's, that like a, What's that MTV? What's that MTV? Yeah, it's not radio. It's <laughs> not freeform radio. That's for sure. But anyway, it just, it makes me laugh because they're, they're saying this will be, you know, the first generation that they all they've grown up with the real world like it's been 
so they'll be the first real world participants <laughs> that are so overly conscious of themselves as real world that seems terrifying <laughs> yeah seems... doesn't it yeah but i hope someone represents ann arbor yeah i don't know go. someone out there someone out there <laughs> But back to back to the imagination. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Something sure. to 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 rail against that. This um, idea of things aren't in this grid. Yeah. So f- for the writing, it's important then to somehow make the space for the imagination to yes. flow. In. Yes. Yeah. I mean, um, and also, I mean, especially, especially we here, we modern creatures, um, we have a lot of sort of cilia and antennae that are picking up a lot of things all the time, right? I mean, you know, I live in a city, you live in a city, we live in a world that's saturated with images and sounds and and languages and um and we are we are we are picking up on this stuff all the time. It's impressing us, itself on us all the time. Um mm. right? I mean, you know, it, when we think about a movement like impressionism, is the image impressing itself on us or are we impressing ourselves on the image, right? Mm. And really, in a way, it's that the image is... Imp- so all of these images are impressing themselves on us constantly. And if you um, if you allow yourself to tune into what you already know or what you already kind of... what you already kind of sense, you sense a lot. You sense actually quite a bit. And that tells you more often intuitively than any amount of research can can yield right so trusting those instincts yeah absolutely trusting those instincts and also trusting that you've actually taken in probably more you probably take in more in one day than you can use in a lifetime right some days it feels like that. Yeah, some days it does feel like that, especially especially now with all the sensory input that there is. But um, but so I think that I think that as writers, you know, well, as readers, we can always smell when a character has been sort of forcibly sewn together or or cut to fit a certain space, as opposed to a character who has a who has a, a deep, rich, organic life. And obviously, the latter is what one tries tries to do by not by not trying too hard i guess <laughs> yeah. yeah and it is that it's hard to describe what that sense is so that you just know as a reader or as a writer as yeah. there a way to describe it too when you're in knowing that the character is feels real to you yeah. or authentic. Yeah. I mean, and I think that, you know, I think that readers are actually remarkably good at, at, at sniffing that out, right? They can really, they can really feel it. I mean, I always think about, um, a big trash bestseller like Valley of the Dolls, you know, Jacqueline Suzanne, th- that book is, is, I mean, if, you've, if one has never read it, it's a, it's a gripping read. Have you ever read it? No. It's a, fa- it's a fabulous read. You just yeah. turn the pages, you know, you know, you can't turn the pages fast enough. And, you know, Jacqueline Suzanne, when she wrote that book, that was a world that she knew. They were women that she knew. And she was not obviously um, a, a terrific writer in the sense of sentences, words, languages, you know, language, things like that. But she was writing about about people for whom she had a deep feeling and it shows. And that's why people attached to that book and why they have attached to that book you know, Neely O'Hara is this sort of, you know, cultural icon 
for a reason because Jacqueline Suzanne believed in those characters and you can feel it on the page whereas I can think of well I wouldn't name them but I can think of I can think of any number of books that are very that are much worthier and inhabit much loftier reaches where the characters just feel utterly dead behind the eyes um and but is something else then working by the sounds of it to to take them into a a category of t- storytelling that yeah. still works yeah. or or sure. for some people sure sure and language will do a lot i mean a person who can who can make a beautiful sentence you can almost make something feel like it's moving if the sentence is beautiful enough right yes and then i wonder if you that's that that sort of emptiness that you feel sometimes after being inhabiting a, a novel or for so long being yeah. being being in this other place and yeah. going with them but then sometimes well you look up from feeling. the page and you think i don't think so <laughs> you look up from the page and you're like yeah no that is <laughs> that isn't what would happen but i mean we're speaking i mean it feels in a way as if we're speaking about some of the more esoteric practices of the art um it, and right we... and but it's but it's it's true you know you can feel when something has its soul and you can feel when it doesn't both as a writer and as a reader unfortunately as a writer you're then left with the problem of trying to infuse a soul into something that maybe is never going to have one as a reader you can just pick up another book because and does that work because i almost picture like one of those um the the tools for a fire where you're trying to foof some soul into it right right exactly i mean you know it's like a book say like the scarlet letter right i mean hester prynne is you know she every time i read that book she just she just makes me weep because she is so alive. Hawthorne, she is so extraordinarily alive. And he's and he has something in that book that is so precious and so human and so extraordinary. How did he do that? Right. I mean, it's not simply a matter of taking it apart on the level of sentence or scene or whatever. Um, there was you have to fall in love with your characters a little bit, at least a little bit, in order to get that quality. And in fact, I mean, the problem may be sometimes that we have not allowed ourselves to fall as deeply in love as we we might have. And and how do you feel about Gabriel? Because we'll hear a little bit about Gabriel um, when we come back after the break. Yeah, well, Gabriel, who's the main character of The Sky Below, is... um, is bad. He is, he is, he is, I mean, he's not horribly bad, but he's probably the worst kind of bad, which is just, just a little bit too bad. Um, he's not, he, he wouldn't knife you, but you probably shouldn't leave your credit cards around when Gabriel is around. And, and much of the book is about, is about him, sort of shuttling back and forth between the sort of artistic side of his personality and the kind of griftery, thievy side of his personality. And um, uh, I certainly was... I, I certainly was kind of in love with him. Um, I, But he was tough to manage. <laughs> 
he was tough to manage. In art, as he would have been in life, um, he was a bit tough to uh, he was a bit tough to deal with sometimes. Um, and when you first met him, like this idea of like like was he an image in your mind? Did he come to you as the little the young? boy the eight-year-old or was it was it somewhere yeah. in his future or no he came to me from um a long time before i had ever even written one book i had written a novella with a version of this character in which um in which i had invented this character who had invented a niche for himself in publishing that he was the death editor. I thought this was the most clever idea that anyone had ever come up with ever. That that he was this that he that he had that he had figured out a way where he would publish all these books on death and he had kind of cornered I mean you can imagine what sort of you can imagine that, right? It would be like the t- you know, you would do an illustrated Tibetan book of the dead and then you'd do a picture book of mummies and then I mean you can imagine a publishing niche of this kind. And I imagine this I thought it was a fantastic idea. And um that was his that was his original incarnation and then he became something else as i began working on the novel well let's well we'll take a short break and then we'll hear yeah. part of what he became yeah. um stacy durasmo is here in the studio today um when we come back we'll hear part of the sky below you've got living writers on wcbn fm ann arbor we'll be back <laughs> She walked up to me and she asked me to dance I asked her her name and in a thought-prone voice she said Lola Back. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Stacy Durasmo is here, and that was good old Lola. Good old Lola, <laughs> who's actually who's actually beautifully appropriate to Gabriel because um, throughout the book, although he's although he mostly um, is a gay guy, he also he he's also he also has relationships with women and is interested in women, and he because he. Um, you know, Gabriel is kind of in the world for whatever he can figure out at any given time. Um, so, you know, gender is as nothing to him, um, and he and he he moves very easily among the among the genders as a as a lover. So that was actually a great that was actually a great tie-in. <laughs> he's a I mean, it, in every regard, he's a slippery character. He. Um, He's both good and bad. He has higher aspirations and terrible aspirations. He is loving and untrustworthy. He, um, you know, he's tremendously innocent in a certain kind of way and also um, very much a thief. He really, he's a, he's a very complex mixture of qualities. Um, and so I found him very, very interesting to make. Um, and he and also 
often very frustrating. <laughs> there are many sweaty hours at my desk just thinking, why did I ever start this? This is a disaster. Um, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, were lo- there, uh, there was one particular time when I was... Um, at a writer's colony, which was really lovely and wonderful, and everything was happy, happy, happy. And I would literally, I would literally sit in my fabulous little studio, sweating and swearing and thinking, this is the worst idea I ever had in my life. Nothing about this is working. I can't do it. And that went on for, for months. I mean, I wasn't at the colony for months, but that, that phase went on for a very, very long time where I really didn't think I was going to be able to to do this, to sort of pull this off. And what changed? Like, what shifted well, suddenly? Well, you know, I just, yeah, I just kept going. I mean, I just, you know, it was sort of, um, I, you know, I'm very willful, and I just I just kept at it. And, and I, I decided, you know, as writers, right, we set ourselves problems that we have already decided that we can solve whether we can actually solve them or not. Do you know what I mean? You sit at your desk and you're like, okay, pumpkin plus cow plus triangle equals. And then you figure that eventually you're going to know what it equals because you set it up so you'll figure it out. At certain points, the abyss that opens up in front of one as a writer is the horrifying knowledge that these three things may not actually equal anything. Um, and, and then you're like, and then is life meaningless. It's like, well, pumpkin cow triangle. I don't know. I'm not sure I can get those to go together. And with, and with what I was working with in the sky below, because I had this griftery guy and there's a great deal in the book that actually has to do with Ovid and metamorphosis and, um, transformations. And there's also an illness in the book. And, and it, it, it seemed to me in my heart that all these things were going to, to come together, but there were many moments of thinking that was really stupid. These will never come together. Um, eventually, they did, but it just took a long. It was a long, sweaty time of 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 simply remaining with it um, and just just trudging on and just insisting that it yield its answer, which I hope ultimately it did. And, and does that mean, like, when you're insisting and trudging on, does that mean you're writing pages each yeah, day? You're like you're pages. Yeah, you're writing pages. You're... Yeah, you're sitting at your desk, cursing your own name, um, and just continuing to look. Just continuing to look. And some of these, then, these pages are, are, are false directions, so that you just push them yeah. away. And then, yeah. But, but yeah, gave... many little tear-stained pages fall, or, you know, whatever the equivalent would be on the computer screen. Little little tears running down the computer screen, <laughs> shooting out of your eyes. Yeah. Oh, some emoticon. Yeah, some emoticon. You should have, that's right. There should be an emoticon for writers now of where you could just stick little tears in. <laughs> Definitely. Exactly. The pages would be damp and curling That's right. here. That's right. Oh. Well, you know what? Let's it's let's yeah. hear the success that sure. actually well, comes from you're sweet. keeping going. <laughs> um, okay, so what I'm going to read is um, when Gabriel, this is a section from when Gabriel is a, is a young teenager, probably about 14. And he has an older sister named Carolyn. They're living in Florida. He's just gotten in an enormous amount of trouble for a lot of thieving that he's been doing. And Carolyn has finally taken him with her into this secret swamp place that she likes to 
go to. I love this scene. Thanks um, for reading that. Okay, so they're going into this. They're going into this swamp, and they've climbed up this tree. Okay. Carolyn's crazy black hair seemed to have been pulled from the shaggy tree we sat in and to be reaching to retwine itself among the branches. It was hot in this swamp. It seemed hotter than it had been outside of it, as if the heat of the day had collected and condensed in here, caught and held by the abundant undergrowth, waiting for the tide of night to cool it. Where we sat felt like the exact edge of day and night, heat and coolness, earth and air. The tree against my back was sticky and sharp, holding and biting me at the same time. They weren't there, and then they were. They seemed to arrive so suddenly that I might have said they emerged from Carolyn's hair, that the ends of her black hair had turned into small black birds with yellow wings, but of course that isn't true. They flew to her and landed softly on her outstretched hands, her arms. They settled on her shoulders and the top of her head. They seemed to bring a light with them, but maybe it was a sound or a motion, or it might have been a feeling or something that they knew altogether. Carolyn smiled, winced as they pulled at her hair, keeping her eyes closed. They jostled one another, dipping at her shining hands and arms. They were the most gorgeous things I had ever seen, and my sister seemed to be dissolving into them, beginning with her outer edges, undoing herself into a flock of small birds streaked with gold. Her arms were their branches. Her hair was their nest. The black and gold birds were her thoughts whirling in the air around her. Her eyes were closed. She had become something else. She was so beautiful. She was elsewhere. The gods had chosen her. They had changed her. They were changing her before my eyes. More than anything in the world, I wanted that to happen to me. I'll stop there. Thank you, Stacey. Sure. Yeah, talk about metamorphosis. Yeah. Yeah, it's a moment. It's a moment where, I mean, the sister, uh, what she's done is she's just, she's in this swamp and she's just found this way to um, sort of put on her hands and arms the stuff that attracts these little birds at twilight and then they, then so that she can have this kind of magical moment. And, and to Gabriel, it looks for a moment as if she has transformed herself into sort of the tree and the branches and the birds. And so it's a, it is a it's a very very fleeting metamorphosis that his sister that happens to his sister and it seems like at this part in the book so like such a gift that she is showing him yeah because of their what's been happening in their situation having yeah. to because they've just moved to florida it's, it's yeah they're down on their luck um the whole family is kind of down sunburst, on it. down the sun yeah they're running a motel in florida and everything's kind of cruddy and kind of awful and then gabriel has become this kind of small-time grifter and and he's been doing cruddy things and now he's gotten caught and um where this scene came from or one of the origins of the scene is that um, I had before I wrote the book, I had been coincidentally reading Ovid's Metamorphoses, which I had never read, and I just was reading it, and it was it was completely amazing to me. And and what I really noticed about Ovid is that what you see in Ovid very very often is that mortals will be transformed into something else, most often something in nature, a tree, a wind, uh, you know, a river, when they are feeling an emotion that is too great for them to bear 
or they're in circumstances that are more than they can stand, right? Daphne is being pursued by Apollo, um, who's trying to rape her, and that's when she's turned into a laurel tree. Or very, you know, people will be overcome with grief, and then they become a river. It's as if a kind of seam opens up in nature and, um, and, brings, and brings the human being into it when they're experiencing something that is almost too much for them. And this is obviously on a much smaller, this is obviously on a much more banal scale than Daphne being pursued by Apollo. But for Gabriel, it's a moment when his life is almost unbearable to him and um, where he's experienced a great deal of loss. And so this moment where he witnesses this transformation in his sister is a, is a kind of a, a tremendous gift, right? In the, in, I'm not comparing myself to Ovid, but that's what Ovid does. And one of the reasons why the Metamorphoses is such a, an extraordinarily compelling and beautiful um, book, because you feel the, the tremendous press of emotion in it. And that's what you were talking about. It connects to that, Stacey, where that we are, as we're even walking around in the world, we're being impressed. And, That's right. And the impressionists and this pressing on each other and That's back. Right. And That's so right. this is this is a moment across time you and Ovid had. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Ovid and I together again for the first time. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you know, for anyone who hasn't read The Metamorphoses recently, I have to say it's it's it is unbelievably extraordinary. I mean, the detail is extraordinary. The way Ovid writes the transformations is incredible. It's it's just so amazing. But also, it's a very deeply psychological and emotional work where he's really trying to um, work with really powerful emotions. I mean, the gods also have really... A lot of their emotions are a little more... Um, are a little easier to understand or a little, I don't know, they're a little simpler or something. It's like they just want to like have people or get stuff or get revenge <laughs> against another god. Um, the, the mortals' mo- emotions often tend to be more mixed and complicated. Yeah, more gray. Yeah, there's a lot more gray area for the for the mortals, for the poor little mortals. Um, but the gods, too, are are transforming for big reasons. They're not just, they're not just like transforming for the hell of it. Yeah. They're, they're... They're taking on other shapes because they're motivated by really powerful internal forces. And that's, that's you know, you read Ovid and it's just incredibly exciting because these are such complex, fascinating, powerful characters. Really. And, and is that also why you chose then the, the epigraph for the book where mm-hmm. uh, heaven is no safer? Yeah, from Ovid, heaven was no safer. Um, meaning, or the way that I that I took it to mean for the book is, um, you know, both above and below, it's a big mess. And, and um, these forces are, are moving around us and through us and through the gods and through everything all the time. And um, there is no realm that is, there is no icy realm. It's, it's all this, it's all a lot of force. And, um, and power and and so that's why so Gabriel who's kind of roaming around all the time making mistakes and trying to get the world to bend his way uh, can't find that 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 safe heaven because it doesn't exist ah 
We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Today on Living Writers, Stacey Durasmo is here. You just heard a small bit from the sky below. Stacey will be reading tomorrow at the, the university's art museum. We'll take a short break. We'll be back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Stacey Durasmo is here. Stacey, thanks so much for, for being here and oh, talking so with me today. It's a pleasure. I could just hang out for such a long time. <laughs> <We're> just, <laughs> well, it's great. You're welcome any anytime, anytime mm. at all. <laughs> we can talk by phone, too. That's right. right. <laughs> we can right. Skype. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Radio yeah. and video. Yeah. That's going to be crazy. Right on. <laughs> But but Stacy, thanks for picking the the cat power also because we've been I feel like haunting has been a yeah. theme that we've been talking yeah. about today and her voice does it. Yeah, she's very. I mean, she. I mean, you know, she's she really is a kind of a uh, she's a sister to PJ Harvey in in many ways in that she has that 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 rich, thick, haunted sound. Um, and actually, it's funny. I, I forgot about this when I when I chose this song for you guys but that song actually was burned onto a cd for me by um the writer charles baxter who who i know was connected to the u of m for a a really long time yeah yeah and that's actually how i found how i found that song um and metal heart that cat power song is actually a song i mean if you if you look at the lyrics, you can't figure out what it is. Okay, so I mean, it's it's not it's not really legible in that kind of way, but um, so you have to it, feel it. You have to feel it, um, but it does have this it does have this transformative theme that runs through it, right? Um, it's it's just a very it has this very um, th- these very powerful fragments that have to do with transformation. It's a it's a really it's a really beautiful song and to me i mean the sound of that song that you just heard to me would be like the interior sound of gabriel like inside him i think that's what it's like in there do you know what i mean um that's his that would be his inner music it would sound something like that so you really you you know your characters yeah thoroughly. i always really know my characters i feel really um i feel really uh, close to them, intimate with them, and that I need to understand them deeply in order to in order to write them definitely 
And does it, what does it feel like then when you, you've finished the draft and you're, does it feel like a, a walking away in some ways or how does it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's funny, you know, the, the first book I wrote T I'll never forget when I, when I actually came to the end, when I knew that I had reached the end of the book, I'll, I was sitting at my desk, which was then on 11th street in Manhattan. And, um, I actually thought I was going to vomit, like literally vomit onto the desk. Um, because somehow it was such a it was such a profound moment of feeling that that I had made something and also that that I was leaving something and also every time you make a book there is this odd shadow there's this odd melancholy in that you realize that this book that you have made is only this book Right. This character that you have made is only this character. When you start, you think I might be writing any book I could be writing. It's Moby Dick and it's Jane Eyre and it's Mrs. Dalloway and it's everything. And it's Vox all in the blender together. And then when you finish, you realize that, in fact, you have only written this book and that with this character, you have only written this character or this group of characters. And um, and. Now you have to do it again. I mean, you can't. Do you know what I mean? It's, but, does, it, but then is that part of the hope? Because it's the melancholy, but then that also might be part of the compulsion. Then, yeah. Where it's like well, there is more to say. Yeah. There's more to see. Yeah. Or, yeah. That you that you are ready to um, you're ready to you're ready to make the next one. Right. But I think that I mean, I've come to understand, actually, now that I've now that I've written three books and I'm and I'm, you know, working towards my fourth, I have realized the little trick, which is that we're always ever sort of pitching the penny halfway to the wall. And we keep thinking, okay, well, then I'm going to do halfway again, and I'm almost going to get to the wall, but you're never going to get to the wall. You just keep pitching that penny halfway to the wall, each time thinking that you're getting a little closer um, when you're drafting the story, like no, or, with you, every so, book, with every book, sure. Mm -hmm. Every book you think, oh, no, oh, no, now I'm really going to get it. No, no. Oh, no. Now those other ones, forget it. But this one. Yes. This is the one. Yes. Um, so you feel like the, the penny's going all the way. Oh, yeah. You always every time you're pushing the penny halfway to the wall, you think, oh, no, really? It's hit the wall. It's going to hit the wall this time. <laughs> um, and of course, both the good news and the bad news is it never hits the wall. That's why you keep doing it. Um, and actually, I. I asked the writer John Banville this question. I said, you know, basically, does the penny ever get to the wall? And he said, no. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Um, and you're probably, you, you know, you're probably, you know, laying there at the end thinking, okay, wait, if I just had another week, <laughs> I, could, I could get it all the way to the wall. And you can't. You can't. And so is that something also about knowing when to let go? Or mm -hmm. because when you described it, it also felt at least for T a novel, it, yeah. it felt like there was that moment. Yeah, but you know. So, yeah. No, definitely. No, definitely with each. I mean, definitely each time with each book. For me, there's been a moment of of knowing. I know it's done. I know it's done, which doesn't necessarily mean I think everything in it is 
exactly as it should be. It's just that I know that it's done. This is the book. And, you know, you then, you know, then you do your best and you tweak it and sand it and blah, 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 blah. But, but in fact, this is the book you've made. That's it. Um, and with each, with each one, I've, I've very much had that, that moment, um, of knowing when it's starting and then knowing when it's done. And that somehow it's fulfilled. The penny yeah. is, even if it's in flight. That's it. Yeah. That's your penny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's where it landed this time. Um, you're sort of like your own coral reef, right? You just keep on, you just keep on making this coral. Um, and, and, you know, when you look at the work of writers over time, right, you know, that's what you see. I mean, um, I was just working with a book of Virginia Woolf's in, at school in class, and, you know, that's an extraordinary oeuvre, right, um, of hers. But what you see is, at a very, very, very high level, she kept pitching that penny at the wall, and one could never say that it seemed that she was done. Do you know what I mean? Like, who would, you would, You don't come to Between the Acts and think, okay, well, that, oh, good. Well, that we've had enough of that. Oh, the waves. Oh, the waves. Okay. Oh, well, great. Good. Done. <laughs> you don't, you, you, it's, it's almost like a voice that swells and diminishes. Um, but that, of course, you would love to hear more of, right? Um, so, you know. Hopefully, hopefully you get a little swelling in your in your life as a writer. You get a couple good swells. <laughs> yes, yes, and then and then they they have these life. They take on these yeah. lives. They're are, they're yeah. in the world. Yeah, they keep swelling. They keep swelling <laughs> even after you're not here. Yeah, that's that's what we hope for. Exactly. <laughs> oh, we're getting a little giddy here. <laughs> no, <laughs> just just. Just me, I think. I I had a, a very a very small question yeah, sure. that I was wondering about with um the the structuring yeah. of of the sky below with uh, the lead sentence for each of the chapters because the chapters yeah. they roam like some of them are well some of them are very short but yeah. some of them are expansive and and can you talk a little bit about this idea of that that lead sentence? Yeah, that- there are these um there are these little sentences at the beginning of each of the sections of this book that um, are almost like little, little fragments of myth. I mean, that's what I meant it to be. That's what I meant it to be like, that it's, that they're almost like little, little lines, little outtakes from a myth that doesn't quite exist. That's what I meant it to be a kind of, kind of half a race line so that, so that it continually keys the reader that we're in a kind of a mythic landscape. But I, I, I very much did not want to, um, map the sky below onto a specific myth. Do you know what I mean? Um, I didn't want it to be like, uh, okay, now I will make my story of Prometheus. Of Prometheus. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. I wasn't trying to do a kind of one-to-one matching. I was, I was simply trying to wander around in that world a little bit. An so, evocative world. An evocative world. So those, it. so those lines um, are meant to heighten the awareness that we're in a kind of a mythic landscape, but definitively not peg it to a specific, a specific myth. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what, yeah, that's what those were doing. I really liked (laughs) it. Thanks. Thanks. (laughs) 
<laughs> and, and, and here I thought we were going to talk a little bit about dancing in New York City. Oh, dancing in New York City. Soul. Yeah, I thought. Well, we were... <laughs> I'll tell you. Well, I could actually, I can, I can, I can tie that together for you. Which and is, and then that... we'll go out on a sort of an uplifting That's song right. as well. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Um, Body and Soul was this fantastic. Um, dance party that used to happen in New York once a week. It happened on Sunday afternoons from five in the afternoon, only until midnight. And it happened in this, it was in this big warehouse and it was this, one of the most extraordinary scenes I've ever been in, in my life, because at body and soul, there was every kind of person that there is was in body and soul, every race, every sexual orientation, every gender, every permutation of everything, every age, everybody was at body and soul. And it was only people, it was the people who wanted to dance. And it was simply that this kind of dancing would start at five and you would dance yourself into a kind of trance state for hours. And, and actually what it, one of the many things that it did was, um, it was a kind of transformation into a collective body that was incredibly powerful. I mean, um, another metamorphosis. It was, it really was, you would feel the borders of yourself. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not like a big drug taker. I think I'm sure some people there were on drugs, but it was not, it, it was wasn't the, the drugs. Yeah. It wasn't the drug. It was actually the nineties, but it wasn't the oh, drugs. The um, there was, it did something to you that, that made you all together into something bigger than any of you were individually. And it was extraordinarily powerful. I mean, it was just a, a, a phenomenal kind of transformative experience every time you, every time you went and did it. And I just had some, it was just wonderful. Honestly, there's really nothing there. It was just a wonderful, really moving experience. And incredibly um, exhilarating. It was great. Stacey Durasmo, thank you so much for thank being you. on Living Writers Thanks. today. Thanks. I so enjoyed it. It's been fun. We'll, we'll talk again. Okay. Um, Stacey Durasmo, tomorrow at the, the University Art Museum, um, will be reading from her novel, The Sky Below. Thanks for listening, everyone. Enjoy the tune. Until next time, I'm T. Hetzel. <laughs> Songs of yesterday, and I've made up 
WCBNFM and Arbor Archives. Original air date November 22, 2015 at 3 p.m. It is 3 o'clock. That means that Radiozilla is just about out of here as you listen to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I've been Cameron. Let me just catch you up real quick, a little bit. Taeko Onuki with that track called Tokai off of Sunshower, which was released in 1977. And right before it, we had Otori with a track called Gakushu off of an album, I Want to Be Your Noise. That one's brand new. And Midori with Kyo wa Kareshi ga Inaikara, which, is, which means, um, well, today my boyfriend isn't here and that's why. And I don't, I don't know, I can't vouch for what they were singing about, but before that, Mechanophone with a track called Maware Maware Maware, so it's spinning around in circles off of an album, I Infinity You, spelled with that symbol of infinity. We're going to end now to give my, to give my friend my relief here my uh, sounds of the subcontinent relief to a moment to grab some stuff we're going to end with one here which is actually so um the rapper aristophanes is uh from taiwan actually getting a good amount of publicity recently because she features on one of the tracks on grimes new album art angels which is very very widely 